Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember Mrs. Sadie Smuggery. The Media Project is a half-hour conversation among some folks who have had a lot of experience <laughs> watching and being engaged in what's going on in the media. This is how we market the fact that, you know, we're... Justify. Ju yeah, we justify <laughs> being what age and so on we are. I'm Rex Smith, by the way, here. Alan Shartok, Rosemary Romeo, Judy Patrick. We are the Media Projectors, right? Dr. Shartok, the CEO Projectiles. of Public Projectiles, yes. Yeah. And we are going to talk about what's going on in the media. I want to put forward a proposition and see if you all will step into it a little bit and give me your thoughts. Campaign season is not necessarily a time when you ought to expect to hear rational conversation about the most important issues of the time. Yet, you can't help but be frustrated. I would say, in my view, the two most fundamental issues that are important right now are the global climate change, in which the world is actually at risk of significant disruption and the threat to democracy in the United States, then yes, inflation, you know, there's an overall question of justice. In any case, thinking about climate change, let's say, and the threat to democracy, if we were to buy the hypothesis that those are the two most important issues, why is it that we don't hear much about that on the campaign trail? And is that something the media can do anything about? Or is our job simply to tell people what the candidates are saying? Dr. Shartok, you are a political I, scientist. Can you I help knew us you here? Were, I knew you were going to do that. You know, uh, it brings back memories of the sixth grade when I'm sitting there cowering in my seat. Saying, <laughs> Please don't call on me. <laughs> I'm so sorry to, to bring back... Uh, memories of the sixth grade. Memories, yeah. yeah. Yes. So what do you think? Is this a journalistic issue or is it just simply a, an issue for politics? Well, in the end, it's all journalistic issues. Certainly everything that we know about politics involves the media. I mean, one way or the other, people are going to have to get their clues about what's going on in the world. And that's going to come because they turn on the radio or the television or read the newspaper, which is why we call this program the Media Project, you see, because we're involving all of those in, in our decision making. And so, yeah, I think that everything that goes on is reflected in our media. Don't you, Rosemary? I'm trying to debate how I feel about it. I think they certainly are definitely intertwined, but that's different than saying that the media has not done a good job covering climate. Not, I think it has done a stupendous job. It was unbalanced at first when we covered it as a debate of the who's right majority by far, vast majority who said it's real 
and the smaller percentage, much smaller, who said, well, no, maybe not. I think we're way past that, and that maybe gave people who do not want to do anything about climate change an excuse that I wish they did not have. But I think we're long past that. I think we've covered not only the climate debate, the impact of it, the consequences of it, the political inaction of it, the stupidity of people who still are saying, no, let's just ignore it and talk about inflation as if it's separate from the economy. Want to talk about immigration as if it's separate from climate change. It is now impacting every other one of the stories that we're covering. I think the media is saying that over and over again, but it's just like saying, hey, Saddam Hussein had nothing to do with 9-11, and people didn't believe it. They didn't believe the media. I think we're at that point. Judy, can the media do anything more if this is the fundamental issue of our time? It's an existential problem, but I still put forward the notion that the politicians aren't talking about it much. Well, you know, it's the old chicken and egg issue because if you look at polling of what issues the electorate cares about, climate does not rank very high. And so maybe that's why the politicians are focused so focused on the inflation and other issues. And maybe that's why climate doesn't rise to the top. But I think it's a question that needs to be asked at every debate for what use those debates are. We can raise the issue, but part of the problem is it's not on a high level of consciousness among the electric, in part because day in and day out, these stories aren't aren't reaching them in a way that's meaningful. And yet the media gives clues to people which should be important to them. So to some degree, since this is the media project, is the media screwing the people by not basically giving them the information that they need and setting the precedents? By not using the platforms that we have yes. quite vociferously enough. Yes. Yeah. I don't know how you can do it. The problem is that if politicians, the candidates, are playing to only what is of most immediate relevance to voters, you can understand that if that's going to motivate voters. So, okay, you talk about rising prices, and you can blame the Democrats who are in uh, sensibly in power for doing that. But if you have a platform, if you are news media, and if you recognize that the issue that people say they care most about that smacks them in the face is not necessarily the one that they need to focus most about because, you know, inflation comes and goes. Climate change is forever. I think the truth is that the media has no idea to make climate have more impact, and it is a problem that begins years ago. When has journalism really ever been at the front of any movement for a change? We have campaigns, and we you know, celebrate when we get small movements, but civil rights, we were not in the front of it. The abolitionists were alone during war, even on slavery, something so fundamental as that incest, rape, women's rights. The media has not been at the forefront of any movement. How can it be? You put out stories, you put out campaigns, you do editorials, and people don't listen. The only part of this, the demographics of our country right now that seems to really care about climate are young people, and they still are not voting. Mm -hmm. Nor consuming traditional news media. Yeah, that's a very good point. Exactly. You know, more Americans... don't you think, Rex, even on TikTok and YouTube, you're seeing a lot more on climate than you ever have before? Yeah, yeah. TikTok, interesting. I mean, I'm, I don't really follow TikTok, but about a quarter of U.S. adults now under the age of 30 are regularly getting their news on TikTok. And, you know, we're not, right, engaged with TikTok Good. here, folks? <laughs> I, I look at it, but only in dismay most of the yeah. time. But in my class, college classes, yes, they are watching TikTok. And they would argue, they do argue with me, that my definition of news is different than theirs. And they will put out stuff that to me seems like fluff or filler. 
It's not about government or election or climate or science. Right. I view it as primarily in an entertainment format that sometimes slips some pieces of news in it, but it's certainly not comprehensive, and it's dismaying to see that. In part, I agree with Rosemary, it's their interpretation of what news is because people have wide disparities of opinions about what news is and what news isn't. Well, you have even though the largest newspaper chain in the country, Gannett, which has more than 200 newspapers, now putting out a word to their newspapers saying, you know, you need to have a more positive information. You need to, how did that go? Good news has been the bane of my entire professional life. You know, it's like I'm not doing any more nice dog stories. Dog returns home after, But there was, I won't remember her name, but a young woman who is an influencer on TikTok. She has millions of viewers, far more viewers than any reader of any newspaper in the world. And she was doing a demonstration of how to curl your eyelashes. And in the middle of it, she stopped and gave a little speech about how we have to pay attention to human rights violations in China, and then went back to curling her eyelashes. And she's now touting that as her effort to make people aware, meaning TikTok viewers aware. That's the news that we are substituting for newspaper, radio, TV. I'm sorry, I am a dinosaur. I am appalled. You know, it's not even there. We've just seen that even at NPR, which is one of the most sophisticated and I think terrific news organizations in the country, their advice to local news stations like WAMC is to pay more attention to positive. You know, people want information that gives them hope, that is uplifting. This is kind of troubling if that's even the issue at NPR, which primarily goes to people who are older and more thoughtful than just the general public. It's a good thing that we all know, at least I know, as the manager of a major NPR station, that they're not the boss of us, as my kids used to say. <laughs> right. They're, they're just advising they you how you can draw they, a bigger audience. They're they, saying, you know, you can get a bigger audience. And, give them more good news. Well, yeah, give them more good news. And there are fewer listeners than there used to be, 48 million down from 58 million in 2021. So the world is turning away from traditional media. And so maybe the question that we started this with, our candidates are not paying enough attention to the news. Maybe we don't have much hope there. Maybe there's not much of an impact, even if we make a decision to force them to talk about some issues. Well, that's encouraging. You know, you can you can write it. After a while, after being on this earth many decades, you know, you can only read so many good dog stories and not yeah. just find them yeah. boring. It, yeah. You know, the breed may change, the little girl, you know, saving the dog may change, but it gets kind of redundant. It seems forced, you know. I mean, to me, a news story is a a pit bull tearing apart a child, neither one of which should have been in close proximity. That is hardly positive, but it is inherently more memorable than all the good stories about faithful pit bulls, and hence we have, you know, breed discrimination. Yeah. Uh, we think pit bulls are terribly dangerous. I think they're terribly dangerous. But <laughs> yeah. Lib- Libby tells me I'm wrong. But, you know, know in, she's right. In some respects, there is a place to tell stories that reflect what's happening in the community, you know, a, a right. ribbon cutting, but those stories tend to be just read by the people involved, involved with them. But I do think newspapers, especially local newspaper, has some role to play in reflecting, you know, the high school graduation to being the place where people can go and say, this is what happened in my town that day. And the graduation was a good thing. Yeah. Still, going back to climate change, I think it would be really admirable if every local newspaper had someone whose responsibility was saying, how does the climate change affect our community? If your beat is climate, 
at a local newspaper, you know, we've traditionally divided up beats by schools and city hall and cops and so on. Of course, there are so many newspapers with so few reporters now that I'm imagining things, of course, by thinking you actually have a climate reporter. But somebody on a newspaper staff, on a radio station staff, on a TV staff, ought to be the person who is told, see what local stories you can produce that remind people of this grave threat. One other approach being talked about, at least, if not actually implemented, is solutions journalism, which on the surface looks like, oh, some other positive little, you know, BS. (laughs) Um, But if done right, that's really good reporting. Like, does this really work? Is this technique being tried in Bangladesh? Does that really hold back the seas? Could it work in Venice, what they're trying there? There's a documentary. It can be critical, like money is going into this and it isn't working at all, don't try this. That could be really good reporting. But again, it requires staff and money and reporting costs money. That does not appear to be in our traditional budgets anymore. You know, and so much of this has to do with our politicians and their need for media and for press. Yesterday, we were on the air with one of our programs, and my phone rang in the middle of the uh, Hmm. program. This never happened here. No, I can't imagine. (laughs) And I thought the voice was familiar who said hello, and it turned out it was Andrew Cuomo, you see. (laughs) (laughs) Well, how is he? How's he doing? And his his message to me was, which I got up and got out of the room for, was you should be listening to my podcast. So (laughs) the discussion at the time Alan left out was about the current gubernatorial race. Ah. Called in the middle of that. Oh, it was a live broadcast. Oh, what? Yes, he wanted to Mm -hmm. be, I think, part of that discussion. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. Well, there's actually less of a need of politicians to talk to the media these days. This is one of the key factors that's very visible in this year's campaign all over the country. Politicians refusing to talk to reporters, refusing to appear before editorial boards, and getting away with it because it's easier to reach voters with social media by going around the reporters, basically. So one question then is about editorial endorsements. Candidates are not coming in to even talk to editorial boards because they don't care about this. And a lot of newspaper publishers are saying to their editors, don't bother with candidate endorsements. It only alienates people. So, mm, you know, Judy, when you were the editor of the Daily Gazette in Schenectady, there had been a tradition of not endorsing candidates, and that changed under your leadership. Right. It did. In fact, looking back on it, the election season was a lot easier when we didn't endorse because when you do endorse every race you call, you have to have someone come in and you have to meet with them for an hour, an hour and a half. And it's very time consuming. Mm -hmm. Uh, We also felt it gave us a degree of independence because politicians weren't currying our favor one way or the other for the endorsement. But after a while, we changed. And for several years, we did start endorsing. I don't know if it made much of a difference, but I found it useful for us because it did give us a chance to sit down and meet with politicians and take a deeper dive into what they were thinking and what they believed in and where they were planning to go as a resource going forward covering that particular race and covering that particular board or council. But if you don't endorse, you appear, and I I think this is probably true, you appear to be cowardly. 
And I don't know that that's a fair analysis. I didn't intend to be fair. <laughs> Listen to this statistic of the country's 100 biggest newspapers by circulation, which isn't very big these days. 92 endorsed a presidential candidate. 92 out of 100 in 2008. But by 2020, only 54 out of 100 did that, endorsed a presidential candidate. I think that's like some short-sighted thinking by the newspapers. Do we know for sure that newspaper editorials really had an effect ever and what is the effect is the effect only if the person you endorse wins these are editorials they are advisory they give information it's like when if you ask my advice Rex and then you go out and do the opposite thing does that mean you didn't listen to me no it means you listen to it and decided otherwise and there's one other effect Judy along with what you're saying editorials sometimes force candidates who don't talk to come and sit down with the press. And I am mentioning Elise Stefanik, who spoke to my, my nephew, who is a TV reporter in Watertown, does not speak to the local press. She came and talked to them because her opponent, also Matt Castelli, to sat down TV and station. talked to them. Yeah, But not to not most to of the print. newspapers, yeah. right? I think she did speak to the Daily Gazette, didn't she? I think only. she did, too. I think that's the only newspaper that I know of that she has spoken to directly. Yeah. To you you offer candidates. We spoke to your opponent. How about you? You Here's your chance. And mm. sometimes, not always, they take it. But the effectiveness to measure it by whether the candidate you endorse wins, I just think that's wrongheaded. Yeah, I, I agree. That's not the measure. People would sometimes chastise me when I was editor of the Times Union. Oh, you didn't pick the winner, did you? <laughs> Our goal is not to pick who's going to win. Our goal is to speak to voters. As Alan says, they may disagree. But now, Alden Global Capital, the hedge fund that owns a lot of newspapers, including a number in this region, as well as now the Chicago Tribune, the New York Daily News, Boston Herald, those papers have now been forbidden from endorsing candidates for president, governor, and U.S. Senate. That's one of the things that that ownership has taken under consideration. But the Daily News wrote an editorial about the gubernatorial race in New York that did everything but endorse uh -huh. Kathy Hochul. Uh -huh. you know, it was very clear as to where their sentiments lay even though their last sentence was, voters will have to decide. Yeah, that's so, so, <laughs> that's so ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it seems that as legacy media are running into more and more problems, financial and reputation-wise, the approach has been to become less and less offended, become more blah. CNN is doing that now in broadcast. They, they don't want it strong opinions. They don't want partisan and yet, when has that ever worked? Fox has become phenomenally successful with just the absolutely opposite approach. I don't understand why we're seeing this fecklessness, this, this fear of uh, offending anyone being a good thing. Well, the difficulty for most media outlets is the declining interest by an audience that is increasingly divided, and so they will go to some place like Fox that, as you say, wears its opinions on its sleeve, mm -hmm. that biases its news coverage so that they feel comfortable there. Mm -hmm. And I, I worry greatly. CNN is now supposedly aiming toward a thousand layoffs, according to uh, reporting by CNBC. A thousand layoffs at CNN. The parent company is supposedly trying to save three billion dollars. And if you lay off people, if you make your product less appealing to a particular demographic, what today's world suggests is that you're going to be spiraling down, not up, I'm afraid. I, I don't think the solution is to be like Fox, but what are you supposed to do if that is where your audience is? 
Exactly. The solution is to be like Fox if you want the rewards that Fox gets. So if you want to be, uh, you know, Professor Chumley, that's a different story. Uh, and you want to be above the fray, you behave one way. But if you want those listeners and those viewers, we know it works. We know it from Fox, don't we? One of the things CNN is talking about doing is focusing more on its CNN.com site, which has great potential if they've developed it more. They, they're cutting back on podcasts, which some, some people are saying have outlived their, their growth potential. You know, one of the things they mentioned was the fact that they they have hundreds of journalists out there working in the field. But my question is, why if they have hundreds? Why are the same twenty on all the time? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it sounds good that they want to be more balanced. That they want to do less of these loaded questions to people like, "Well, don't you think it's outrageous that this happened?" I mean, or to tone down the everything's breaking news cry on that runs at the bottom of the screen. I'm, I'm glad to be rid of that. There's some improvements definitely to be made, but you know, the truth is in, in the telling. We'll see what happens with, with CNN. You know, nobody was really looking forward to CNN plus was at the streaming service. Right. That, you know, <laughs> it lasted two minutes. It huh? lasted a bit longer than Liz Trust. Uh, <laughs> the, the lettuce? Uh, did it outlast yeah, the yeah. lettuce also? Yeah. Too bad. <laughs> One more thing about uh, political campaign season, since we're right in the middle of it, and that has to do with polls, which we've talked about a lot oh, here oh. before. Polls. You see it every time uh, when a poll changes a direction one way or another. You know, oh my gosh, John Fetterman has lost two points in the polls in Pennsylvania. The Republic is in peril. Really, what is with journalists and reporting about polls? It's an easy story. I mean, they come out with a, with a poll, and you need a story. There's the story, right? That's part of it. I, I don't disagree, Alan, but it's more than that, too. It's that it's a number. It looks like a statistic. It looks like evidence. Uh, you know, noted pollster has found the following information after talking to so many people, and that number always looks so big, and this is reliable. And it is not. The polls are inaccurate, and they are misinterpreted. It's a disaster. We really don't know who is going to win any of the big races right now? Oh, no, we know that's not true. We know Marco Rubio is going to probably win. And, uh, <laughs> well, not uh, according I mean, to you, social media. You know, you yes, watch I know. Oh, Val Demings is ahead. Well, that's to raise money. That's another thing that goes into it. You know, they use the polls, too, to, to either scare you or motivate you to send more money. And they should just be discounted by journalists. journalists. Uh, you know, journalists should use polls the way political campaigns do. And I just draw back to my many years ago when I was engaged in political campaigns, looking at polling, you don't use it for the horse race. Mm-hmm. You use it to assess how people are responding. You look more deeply. Look at the cross tabs. Mm-hmm. Look at the data that shows like a campaign will focus on high income women, let's say, and target messages to them if there is a vulnerability. It's the same way that if you're a media company and and, and we did this, uh, we did research when I was uh, the editor of the Times Union looking at an where is the market underserved? We mm-hmm. thought professional women were underserved in the capital region, which led to the creation of Women at Work, which is a magazine yep. and now a yep. social group as well. And that kind of research is valuable to companies for their strategic direction, but it could also be the way that you look at politics. Uh, it's just that, as Alan says, it's easy to just look at the uh, horse race. And as much as I love journalists... They're not very good with numbers as a, as a general rule. They don't understand margin or ratio, and they don't understand point spread, and they all should take a statistics course. Yeah, absolutely. 
Actually, I remember uh, a book help. called How to, <laughs> How to Lie with Statistics uh, was the name of a, a topic of mm -hmm. a, the title of a book that yeah. uh, one of my journalism professors when I was a young fellow actually did have us read. <laughs> Uh, to, tell, to warn us, uh, obviously, the title was meant to be ironic, not to be specific. <laughs> All right, on to a little bit of celebrity news and journalism as we uh, begin to close things out, and that is Bob Woodward. He is perhaps uh, one of the great journalism celebrities, and he now has a new book he's trying to sell, an audio book, actually, called The Trump Tapes, Bob Woodward's 20 Interviews with President Donald Trump. It, it turns out that Woodward had 16 phone calls with Trump, 20 interviews all told, making up eight hours of conversation to produce the book that came out earlier this year called... Uh Rage. Rage, thank you. Absolutely. And now Woodward comes out uh, with an audio book that he's interested in selling in which he says, I realized I had become entangled in the disorder of Trump's presidency. Uh, what do you think about, about journalists who hang on to information for books and who have revelations that conveniently match their marketing? Is that fair? You know, I've spent the last few days listening to this book. I'm sorry to say mm. it's boring. It's oh. repetitive. Um, it's raw notes. And it doesn't add to the Trump story at all. If you read Rage or if you covered any of, if you heard any of the outtakes from Rage, you've heard everything there is to say. I wanted to hear it primarily to hear Woodward's interviewing technique, which cool. uh, after a while he gets sucked in and he starts to offer advice. I would love to hear Donald Trump interviewed by someone who was tenacious, who doesn't let us, who does a good follow-up, who doesn't let him wander, but maybe that's an impossible thing. Okay, so a couple of things. I think uh, Trump has been interviewed by tenacious reporters, sure. and they didn't get nearly the information Woodward does. So I don't know if that's his usual technique, but he is a hell of a writer. He has told us more about how our government and officials lead than anybody else. However, he's also a bit of a huckster. And you know that when he tell he goes on and talks about how he wants you to hear Trump's reaction when he asks about something about COVID. And it was a one-word answer. It was no. And he goes, but you have to hear it. It's, it's different in print than hearing it. I'm sorry. I do not believe that one word is significantly different when written and spoken. <laughs> do you? Do you buy no. that? <clears throat> that that is to sell books. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So he is both a remarkable journalist and a great salesman of his product. All right, and so we hope to be as well, which is why we're glad that we sold this show to you. You agreed to tune in. We're grateful to you for that, folks. That was Rosemary Armeo, Judy Patrick, Alan Shartok, and I'm Rex Smith. With gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, for making this all happen. And we are thankful to you folks for joining us this week once again on The Media Project. Wait, wait, the show is over? <laughs> Sorry, Alan, that's all. <laughs> now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance But finally the movies notwithstanding They all got tired of patches on their pants They organized a union to get a living wage They joined with other... The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is the former editor of the Times Union and Substack columnist. Judy Patrick is the Vice President for Editorial Development for the New York Press Association. And Rosemary Mayo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at RPI. Listen to The Media Project 
online anytime at wamc.org or schedule a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Funny Wall Street never has complained. Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press.